I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode is brought to you by Boombox Gifts, memory boxes filled with personal messages and photos from friends and family for your next special occasion. Check it out at boomboxgifts.com. I'm here today with Darcy Lockman, PhD. She is a former journalist turned clinical psychologist. Her first book, Brooklyn Zoo, The Education of a Psychotherapist, chronicled the year she spent working in the city's psychiatric ward. Her latest book, All the Rage, Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership comes out in May. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and Psychology Today, among others. She currently lives with her husband and daughter in Queens. So welcome to Darcy. Hi. So thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, this is so great. So I want to know what made you decide to write All the Rage. Yeah. But first, I want to hear a little more. You were starting to tell me about how you even got your your writing journey and your yeah. time at Vogue and fact-checking and all that was really interesting <laughs> to me. So, uh, so tell me how you... Your whole, you know, go, you go. Okay. So I moved to New York after college to be a magazine writer. I always wanted to be a writer, and I was never a fiction writer. So that was like, that seemed the avenue to go down. So I got a Rolling Stone internship, actually, when I was still in college for post-graduation. So I moved here to do that and then ended up getting a job at Water Media at the time, Us Magazine. So I started working in magazines. I worked kind of all around, you know, started as an edit assistant answering phones and then started writing, quit my job to be a full-time freelance writer, which was a great thing to do in the late 90s because publishing was kind of, it was a good point to make Mm -hmm. money that way. I don't think it would be anymore. (laughs) Um, And the web was new, so you could write all sorts of stuff for the internet. And then after freelance writing for a while, I wanted a little more stability. So I went to Vogue as a fact checker, which was great. It was such a wonderful place to work around the year 2000. And then went back to school to be a psychologist because it started to feel like the stuff I was writing wasn't that interesting to me. And to make a living full-time as a freelance writer meant doing a lot of stuff that wasn't going to be that interesting to you, at least the track that I was on. So I stopped, but I always had the idea that I would write about psychology eventually, which isn't what this book is about. But it was always in the background writing, even though I was going down a different road. We have a very parallel thing. I was a psych major. I thought I was going to be a psychologist. Uh I interned at Vanity Fair. (laughs) I I mean, I I thought I would be a freelance Uh magazine writer. Anyway, yeah. so I, I feel like our... If we took one of those, like, you yes, know, right. Myers-Briggs tests, tests yeah. like, we would probably be the same. What happened with psychology? Just because of where my life was, I couldn't commit to being in one place for five years. Yeah. So I put it on hold. I ended up going to business school. But I used it more in analyzing consumer behavior uh-huh. um, and doing it more in, like, the business side and doing marketing and things like that for yeah. a little while. But anyway, this is not about me. Okay. Okay. So you became a, a psychologist. You wrote your first book, Brooklyn Zoo. Uh-huh. Tell me a little bit about that. So it's about the year I spent working at Kings County Hospital on the psych ward. Everyone at the end of their doctoral program in clinical psychology does a clinical internship, usually works at a hospital for a year. So I kind of went into it knowing that I wanted to write a you know, early career memoir. Yeah. That would be the category. So I spent the year that I, I actually, part of the reason I picked that hospital because you rank places is I wanted somewhere really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I remember being on my interviews and loving Beth Israel, but I thought, oh, I, this isn't going to be interesting, you know, for a book. I thought, you know, Kings County, I think that's the place to be. Bellevue was sort of the place where people had typically written these yep. kind of books yep. about, but it seemed overdone. And I think 
Well, anyway, so so part of my thinking in going to that particular hospital was it would be a good, like a really rich place. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being a great place to train just because you see so much that you don't necessarily get the chance to see in a different setting. But I took really copious notes all year. Mm-hmm. I would get on the subway after my day at work and just write down everything that had happened during the day. And I also had notebooks with me during the day and I would mm-hmm. I would take notes, which probably seemed a little strange sometimes, but you know, we were learning, so it was acceptable. And then, so I wrote a proposal for that book when my internship ended and sold it and and wrote the book, which was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed doing it and I knew I wanted to write another book. And then how did you arrive at this topic for All the Rage? Well, I <laughs> I arrived so at first, it by... So first tell listeners a little more about what All the Rage is about. Okay. I know the subtitle I read already in the intro, but it's Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership. Yeah. I actually thought you would arrive here looking very angry. Oh, really? You know, rage. I thought you'd be... But no. No. Oh, no, my kids are older now, so there's, there's a lot. There's a lot less stress on our family. How old, are your, how old are your kids? They're now? six and nine. Okay. And at the point when I started to write the proposal, they were six and three. Okay. So it's a really different phase of life. I arrived at this topic by having children with a man. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, my husband and I are both like fairly progressive. There was never any thought that I would be a stay-at-home mother. We met in grad school. We graduated with so much debt that there was no way that even if even if it, I had been inclined to be a stay-at-home mother, that that would have been something that we could have thought about, though I wasn't particularly inclined to do that. It wouldn't suit me temperamentally. But when our first daughter came along, though my husband was in love with her and totally involved with her, I began to see that all the work kind of around her was falling to me, like from finding a preschool to making sure she had everything she needed to being the one who remembered diapers when we went anywhere. And I was really surprised. We were living in this kind of way that felt kind of retro to me and didn't align with our values. And I saw it going on around me as well. You know, you meet a lot of moms when you have a kid. So the mothers I would meet would, and they were, you know, because most of the mothers I met were from our preschool, they they all worked full-time pretty much. And they had the same complaints that I did. And I thought, this is so weird. You know, we didn't think we were going into parenting in 1950, mm-hmm. but we found ourselves parenting in 1950. And I just kept thinking, why is it this way? I, what, what is going on? Why is this? And I think because I come from a journalism background, I thought, well, I can really use my journalistic tools to dissect this problem. I was really just very curious. Like, I really wanted to know, how, how is this that this is going on? So that was the genesis of the book. Wow. You have a great scene in the beginning where you're talking about a mom in the 1950s who wanted to go into the theater, but her husband said, you know, she said, my husband wants me home in the evenings. And then you wrote, it sounded just so very long ago, or did it? Yeah. And I loved that line because I feel like I've maybe said, I mean, not, I've heard that said many times, yeah. right? Oh, he doesn't let me do this, or I can't do this, or yeah. he needs this, or he needs that, or whatever. So, I mean, it depends on the relationship, but I feel... You know, that could have just as easily been this morning. You know, it's funny because I had never heard anyone talk that way. Like, my husband won't let me do that. But when I looked back at my relationship with my husband, you know, we'd been together probably six years before we had kids. And there were little things along the way, places where I kind of acted in a deferential way toward him that I don't think either of us would have tagged Mm -hmm. in the moment. Mm -hmm. but. In retrospect, I kind of saw them. Um, and I, you know, he would he would probably 
laugh to hear me say that because I am not, (laughs) I'm like no shrinking violet when it comes to speaking up for myself. But there were ways in which I took care of him and of us that were sort of more of like from a housewife kind of era. Mm -hmm. And I had other friends too who, who would call themselves feminists, like, you know, happily and shout it from the rooftops, but found themselves cooking for their husbands all the time and things like that. So I think, you know, people do get surprised by how this stuff comes out in heterosexual relationships. And, you know, I certainly was. So, but but again, when I read that, I was like, oh, this is so, or actually I heard that woman on a podcast, as you said, and mm-hmm. it's like, oh, wait a second, maybe this isn't even, I mean, this is like more extreme than we would be, but there, there are remnants, right? right? There are remnants of it still, even today. And you sprinkle throughout the book little anecdotes from your own life in addition to all the research, which must have taken you, I mean, you have a lot in there. Yeah. I was impressed. Thank you. Yeah, good reporting yeah. and everything. Thanks. I spent uh, a long time. I, I can tell. I can tell you spent a long time. It's a lot of information and it's great and really well organized. And Thank you. But you get a lot in there. It's awesome. But then you, you have your own story throughout, which I was particularly interested in hearing about, including just this one scene where you had gone away or you were out all day with the kids and then you were giving them a bath. Well, you just, you can tell the story. If you- there, this was like, I loved putting this story in the book because I think this this is so illustrative of the way this happens. We were at the beach all day. It was a great day at the beach, but, you know, it's a long day. The kids are tired. They haven't had dinner. We're driving home, and we decide that we'll make chicken nuggets from the freezer for dinner so they can eat quickly and go to bed. But they're covered in sand, and they need baths. This was last summer, so my older daughter was eight. My younger daughter was five. The eight-year-old bathes herself, but the five-year-old needed some help. So we get into the apartment, and I go into the bathroom with my younger daughter to get the sand off her and bathe her. And my husband walks into the kitchen. So I assume he's going to put the chicken nuggets in. Don't even say anything because we've already said this is what they're going to do. So, you know, I bathed Tess, my younger daughter. And, you know, a few minutes later, come out of the bathroom and my husband is standing in the kitchen drinking a beer and there are no chicken nuggets in the toaster oven or even having been gotten out of the freezer. It's like he just doesn't. And, you know, my husband is a hardworking guy. He's thoughtful. He's considerate, you know, typically, (laughs) but he just doesn't think about the kids' needs sometimes Mm -hmm. in ways that are so astounding to me. Because when I get home and they need to get into bed and have dinner first, like that's all, like I'm not going to do anything until that's taken care of. And this just so typifies the way we parent together, where he's not really the one who feels responsible because of, you know, what has gone on between us and the norms that have kind of been established without ever talking about them. So... Wait, so what did you do in that kitchen? So I, I walked into the kitchen, I see him standing there having a beer, and I'm just like, I wasn't mad, you know, because I was working on this book, there, you know, the book started with a history of us really fighting a lot. You know, these were huge fights between us and things were tense for a while because I was pretty unhappy with the way things were going in that area. But this was just almost funny to me. I mean, I think because we'd had so many fights about it, I was just like, I, this is just, so I got the chick, I got the nuggets out of the freezer, opened the box, put them in the toaster. He didn't even flinch. He didn't say, oh, oops. Like there was just no, so we didn't have a fight about it. I don't even think we talked about it, but it's just one of those clarifying moments where you're like, this is just, we don't think the same way in relationship to our children. You know, he adores them. He 
does stuff for them, but do, does not think about their kind of care and feeding in the same basic way, or at least takes it for granted that someone else is going to take care of it. I think that's the probably the biggest difference. Do you think part of it is in the communication? Like, it sounds like if you had been like, hey, throw those nuggets in the oven, he would have been like, okay. Yeah, no, he to- he absolutely would have. But it's the, is it the point that you were the one who has to be, let's I, put them I in? I didn't yeah. intentionally not tell him because we had just talked about it. And when I get home with two hungry children and it's bedtime, yeah, it wouldn't, like, there's no way I wouldn't think to do that right. immediately. You are, so, you are like a calmer woman than I am. Yeah, no. I take oh, back the, our, our similar temperaments no, 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 no. because <laughs> I don't think I would have responded in such a, a chill, observant way oh, to a scene like that. Trust me, we've had our moments. <laughs> and I have not always responded in such a chill, observant way. But it, it was just, if, if I'm not there, he's on it. Mm-hmm. But if I'm not, if I'm there, I think he just takes it for granted that I'm going to take care of it. And it is based on a history of me taking care of it. But why was I taking care of it? It's, you know, it's a dynamic between us that I think a lot of couples, that I know a lot of couples fall into. So you observed this dynamic and then you decided to throw yourself into all the research (laughs) on this that you possibly can. (laughs) I did, yeah. The best argument builder possible. Exactly. Like, I'm really going to find out why we're still living this way. You know, we think it's 20, I mean, I started writing the book in... I think I started the proposal in 2015. I took a year to write the proposal. I was kind of, I had mixed feelings about doing it. Mm. It had been such a contentious thing between us that I thought, and we had sort of gotten to a better place with it. I thought, do I really want to pursue this and kind of throw this wrench into my marriage? But he was, you know, he thought it was a great idea. So that made it easy to to proceed. But I did, yeah, definitely, I was going to really figure out why this was going on. What is like the condensed answer to the question. What did you find? The condensed answer is patriarchy. Okay. (laughs) We just, we grow up in a society that teaches us that men's desires and aspirations and comfort is more important than women's. I think there's no way to kind of grow up in our society and not internalize that, even in a time that's more feminist than, you know, 50 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 years ago. It's all around. And there's, you know, there's little stuff in the book to kind of illustrate that. So even if you're raised in a home where your parents kind of act like equals, and I feel like I was, I mean, in the 70s and 80s, my dad did a ton. My mom went back to school when I was in third grade. So he was really left responsible for quite a lot. So it's not like I grew Mm -hmm. up in some leave it to beaver house. But all around you, you see men in power, you see men elevated, you you know, there's a story in the book about statues, not story, but like most of the historical statues in the U.S. are men. So what do, what do little girls see growing up? My daughter, I remember looking at change for the first time and asking me who the presidents were, and it's like, obviously, they're all men. So... I don't know how you don't internalize the idea that you're that you are the second sex, right? That you are that you come second. Hmm. That's interesting. But I don't think you realize it, right? Because it, it's like juxtaposed against this idea of equality that we sort of hold. Not not everybody, but that a lot of people hold, just to be evident, right? right. And you know, there was always this part of my thinking, like with all of this, who should do what in the marriage, and you know. Is society getting it right or getting it wrong? And you said sometimes I think that women are just hardwired to be parents, like to yeah. mother more. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. why is there all this focus all the time on the things that the guys aren't doing? Maybe uh-huh. they're not as good as it. I am yeah. like totally happy to admit that I am not as skilled in some areas as perhaps most men. Yeah. Just spatial relations or all the all the stereotypical things that come from somewhere, right? right. I'm not right. going to be able to... 
pick up a toolbox and know what to do with it. Yeah. And I feel like maybe men pick up a diaper bag in the same way that I hold a toolbox. And they're like, I don't know. Yeah. You can show me. Like, yeah. you can try to teach me how uh-huh. to do this. So I wonder, is it biological? Yes. But then you have in your book this whole section with Lise Elliott who says, you know, no way. Yeah. So what what do you think? What did you make of the research? Parenting skills are learned. They're not innate. And I interviewed anthropologists and primatologists, and there's there's almost, there's no jury that is out on this. Mm-hmm. These skills are learned. So you, you could learn to use a toolbox. Your husband could learn to use a diaper bag. If we believe that these things are innate, we're going to be less inclined to pursue them fully. So I think there is a lot of kind of misconception that women are just innately better at this. In fact, both males and females have evolved to be involved parents, and evolution is hardly my area of expertise. So going back to primates, non-human primates, Mm -hmm. there are hormonal changes even in male like, I'm not going to get the species no, right, but monkeys. Neuro, neurobiological experiences yeah, as yeah. babies gestate. Like. Right, exactly. So you think, well, women, women's bodies change during pregnancy, obviously, and like, the hormones are affected and all this stuff. What I didn't know, and I don't know if this is more common knowledge than I realize, is that men's hormones also change when they're spending time with a pregnant partner. So if you, like, get a woman pregnant and never see her again, you know, it's a one-night stand, your, your hormones don't change, right, because there's no feedback loop that would make that so. But spending time with a pregnant partner raises a man's level of, I think, progesterone, prolactin, the same pregnancy-related hormones that spike in women also spike in men, not to the same degree. Mm -hmm. But Sarah Hardy, who's a really renowned anthropologist and primatologist, talks about this in her book, Mother Nature, about how primates evolved to be involved parents, both male and female. So this idea that only women change during pregnancy and childbirth isn't true. Men are also primed hormonally to parents. And you had said somewhere that only 3 or 5% of all males yeah. species, like the only of three, mammals, yeah. of mammals actually take care of their young after right. they're born. Right, only 3 to 5% of mammals. So it's, pri- it's primates, both human and non-human. And then, like, I think wolves, there's some mice. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's in the book, and I don't remember exactly the information, but, yeah, only 3 to 5% of male mammals do anything post-insemination. I mean, yeah, right? I, I, mean, I, I didn't find it surprising only because I had no knowledge of that. Right. <laughs> right. Fish are really involved parents as our fathers, as our birds. Really? Yeah. Yes. Huh. There, in fact, there's there's some birds where the males do like most of the parenting, including sharing, sitting on the eggs. So, so all of this is learned. Mm-hmm. It's cultural mm-hmm. patriarchy from the statues all around us. What yeah. what are we supposed to do now? Yeah. Well, you know, the people I talked to who were navigating this more successfully were on top of it. I mm. think if you, you know. My husband and I went into parenting just taking for granted that we were going to share things equally. And he would say the same thing. We never talked about what that was actually going to look like. And then I just ended up kind of taking most stuff on. And I don't know if it was because there was a vacuum where he wasn't taking stuff on or, you know, was it, I think part of it is just me assuming that women are going to do this stuff. And then we never kind of course corrected because we never said, wow, we're really sexist, Mm -hmm. right? We needed to kind of sit down and say, we're really sexist. And this isn't working. It wasn't working for me. It wasn't working for him because I was mad at him quite a lot, which is no way to live. So staying on top of it and paying attention to one's kind of implicit biases is, 
I think, the key to not letting things get too out of control. A woman I talked to who was doing this well made a spreadsheet with her husband. And they kind of like sat down and said, who's going to do what? And they they divided it. And that was something that people who study off um, workplaces will also say, because women also end up taking on most of the drudge work at work. There have been studies that look at this. And so the question is asked, like, how do we de-bias people in the workplace? And one of the women who did one of these studies was talking and she said, well, you, you know, you don't have to de-bias anyone. Just like make a list and split stuff up. Don't ask for volunteers. Don't assign people to tasks because women volunteer more and women are assigned to this kind of work more. You have to kind of just like go about it in a really like micromanaging way and say, here's everything. Here's how it's going to break down. So I think if you know how sexism has been like internalized for you and your spouse, like inevitably, you can deal with this like from the get-go. Interesting. Good to know. Yeah. (laughs) You also have your daughter Tess saying that there's a scene where you say kids are more important than Mm grownups. And then you have a whole section on, you know, basically giving, imbuing all the kids with so much power in the family. Tell me a little more about that. One of the concepts that I read about in doing my research was intensive mothering. We are so, I think, as a culture right now focused on being really involved parents in a certain way, and especially mothers. There's a lot of pressure to be putting your own needs second to your kids all the time. And, you know, clearly they need to be fed and clothed and hugged, but their needs do come first. I mean, I wouldn't say my kids are in charge, but our lives are sort of arranged around their schedules and their, and they don't have schedules, but around their needs. And and they sense that. Mm-hmm. And then they get a real, I want to say an inflated sense of their own importance because kids need to feel important, certainly to like develop healthily emotionally. But there is something that feels a little bit too compulsive about it for mm-hmm. I think especially mothers these days, and this isn't to blame women for it. It's just in the culture. Like, how do you not do that when all around you, it's what everybody is doing? How do you, like, not do that and not feel like a bad parent? So her saying that, like, wow, like, I don't remember if I responded to that by saying, no, actually, we're we're all important. (laughs) Um, Though she wouldn't have bought it. Because, again, our our lives are arranged around her needs. Oh, that's funny. So you are a practicing psychotherapist as well yeah. as a writer. Yep. Um, on your website, you you say that you offer a 10-session workshop for expecting couples called Bringing Baby Home, which has been shown to improve relationship satisfaction and decrease the chance of divorce. Uh-huh. Tell me about this. Yeah. And what are like a couple <laughs> bullets from this workshop that any relationship can use? Yeah. So John and Julie Gottman are the therapists who've kind of pioneered this method. They've come up with it and it grew from their work with couples and families. And they created this workshop and then looked at it empirically. So they had people do it and they had control groups and people who had done it and hadn't done it and they studied their marriages. So there's all this empirical work that shows that people who've done these like pre-parenting workshops, things go better. And the divorce rate it's like the, in, in the first five years of the kid's life. I don't think they have data that goes beyond that. But it was significantly lower in couples who had taken the workshop. Isn't it also true, though, not, I don't mean to cut you off, like yeah. people who are going to go in and take a workshop on this <laughs> might care more than the people who don't? Yeah, you know, I don't know how they recruited their subjects. So I'm not sure if it was like okay, a maybe random recruitment. Okay, maybe it was a, br- a blind, whatever. Yeah, okay. it was, right. I, I'm not, I'm not going to remember. But yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. So I actually, for the book and for my practice, I went and got trained in the method. Because if you're a clinician, you can get you can get trained in it. You go to these these things. But it's, I mean, I went to this workshop in 
I think it was in Virginia. They mostly work out of Seattle, so a lot of their stuff's on the West Coast. There were like, I couldn't believe it. There were people from around the world at this workshop. There were people from Thailand, Australia. It was really amazing. So it's actually gotten a really good reputation among clinicians. One of the things that it emphasizes, and one of the reasons I think it's so successful, is that it talks about how important father involvement is. You know, if you go to Lamaze class, which is really the only thing people typically do before before giving birth, right? Most people do some sort of childbirth education class. There's no sense, I mean, you know, the father's kind of an important partner, but everyone knows he's he's second, right, in childbirth, obviously. This workshop emphasizes the importance of fathers in the early weeks, months, and years of caring for a baby because our sort of cultural, conventional wisdom pushes us in the other direction. So the workshop emphasizes communication and father involvement. And it's, it's usually taught in two-day format in like a big workshop. I've offered it in my office because I haven't done the workshops yet, though my husband, who's also a psychologist, and I have been thinking about trying to do some because it just because it the results are so impressive. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. So what do you have coming next? You are you gonna do another book or what do you what do you want to do next? Uh, so <laughs> I'd, I'd love to write another book. I don't have any ideas right now. So I'm not working on anything. But this was so fun. Doing all the research was like awesome. I got to spend a year basically just reading all this stuff that was super interesting and articles and books and interviewing people. It was really fun. Anything I need research now, I am going to send to you. If I have an idea that I don't have, that yeah. I can't research, I, you are going to be my yeah. expert research yeah. resource. Some just so you know. gripping question <laughs> that gripping you have. Question. You need a gripping question. Maybe related to motherhood. Yes, I don't, right, right. I don't have any gripping <laughs> questions right now. I need one. I miss, I miss working on it. It's like postpartum. Oh. Do you have any parting advice to aspiring authors? Let's see. I, I think more to nonfiction writers. Yeah, nonfiction is totally yeah. different. I think my advice would be find a gripping question because mm-hmm. you really live with a book for the time that you're working on it. I mean, I was really immersed in this stuff. And I think to maintain your enthusiasm and your ability to push ahead, you really have to be like fascinated with what you're, with what you're doing and what you're studying, what you're learning about. So that's my advice. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time oh, to Read Books. Thank really you. This was really fun. This episode has been brought to you by Boombox Gifts, memory boxes filled with personal messages and photos from friends and family for your next special occasion. Boomboxgifts.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Mm-hmm.